Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all and be here with you today. As Danielle said, my name is Seth Schuett. I'm one of the elders here. I've been serving in that role for over five years. My wife, Anna, and I have been community group leaders for at least that long. And you will often on Sundays see us in the back wearing those atomic green shirts serving in park or kids park with our kids, Ethne, Silas, and Maisie. And we, we love being a part of this community. Um, and somehow over that time, I have been able to avoid preaching the whole time. So uh, you guys are in for a treat. Today is my first sermon. And when Andrew approached me, I kind of knew what was coming. I knew he was going to ask me to preach, not necessarily because I hadn't done it, uh, just because he needed to fill three months worth of preaching. Um, but I had just done a public speaking training, and so I felt like, okay, now's, now's the time to do it. If there was a time, uh, what am I preaching on? Well, we're going to do the Psalms again this summer. Oh, good. Psalm 46. That's mine. I, I'm claiming it. So I knew right away what I wanted to preach on uh, Psalm 46, and I realized there's food in the lobby, um, so I'm going to try and be efficient, but I feel very passionately about this passage. Uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in there, so I've been trying to cut and paste, and even this morning I completely redid my intro. Uh, so we'll see what happens, but Psalm 46, I'm going to turn there and read it in a moment. It has been referred to as Martin Luther's psalm. It was his inspiration for writing the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, uh, you can probably just refer to the lyrics of the last song that the, uh, that the worship team played, uh, because basically they sang what I'm about to preach. But um, when we think about Martin Luther, he went through some pretty tough times. Uh, in his village, uh, they suffered from outbreaks of the plague, and he would get bad news all the time. And it's said that what would happen when people came and gave him bad news is he would stop and he would say, come, let us sing Psalm 46 together, because it is a great passage, a psalm of rock-solid hope. More recently, uh, Paul Tripp, a popular uh, pastor in the Acts 29 network, uh, described this psalm last May when we were going through everything with COVID. He described it as the ultimate cataclysmic song. And I think we will see pretty quickly uh, what he meant by that. But as we get into it, I think we're going to see how the author is looking at the perspective that we should have on things that have happened to us, things that have been intense and scary and dangerous that we have come through, and then in the future, things that we may face, things that we know that might be on the horizon that give us concern, how we should view and reconcile those things together through the present hope that we have in the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Psalm 46, if you'll stand, uh, if you're able, we'll read this together. Uh, in the Pew Bible, which is the ESV, you'll find it on page 471. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. Not because I'm that guy, but that is my study Bible. Um, so, Psalm 46. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song of Alameth. God is our refuge and strength. 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Heavenly Father, you are righteous. You are holy. You are different than us. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. And yet you are loving and merciful. And we thank you that you are in our midst right now. Lord, as we look at this psalm, I pray that you would just speak to each of us the message that you want us to hear about who you are, about your character, about your kindness, and about the security we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. You can have a seat. So, like I said, I completely changed my intro. Um, and I think, you know, there's so much meat in here. There's so much... Uh, good content that we can apply. And really, when we look at uh, this psalm, the thing that inspired me to dig into it is this shared COVID exodus that we're all going through. We are in strange times. And it's uh, honestly, candidly, not the first time in history that we've had those times. I mean, all of time is affected by sin. And so as we look to raise our kids, as we look to go out into the world and interact with it, we're going to be interacting with strange things and things that are scary. Um, and I'll remind you of last week when John Schomburg from Elmwood was here sharing with us from Psalm 130. He talked a little bit about the essence of sin. And I want to add to what he shared there about sin. I would describe sin today as the rejection of God. It is the opposition to his position and the attempted supplanting of his authority. Now we know God to be holy. We know him to be omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. He can do everything, and he is everywhere. And because of those characteristics, he pours out his judgment and righteous justice on sin. Fortunately, we also know him to be boundlessly merciful. And we see that 
demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. And these are important points to reference as we process the thoughts in Psalm 46. I'll have you uh, skip to the next slide. I did pay attention to that. Hopefully you can see it. But uh, as we look at this, I want to intro to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song of Alamoth. We often, when we're reading the psalms, kind of tend to pass over these little intros. I think I want to call your attention to the sons of Korah here to acknowledge their presence. Uh, They're generally believed to be the authors of this psalm, and I'm going to introduce their backstory a little later, but it's a group of Levites that were appointed by David specifically to be in charge of the music in the temple. So that first verse, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Uh, The psalmist here starts with a really healthy picture of who God is. Oftentimes when we read psalms, that deal with challenging situations or tribulations, they'll start from a different place. Uh, If you look at Psalm 42, which you don't have to, or Psalm 43 starts, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Psalm 42 is... uh, I, my soul thirsts for God. I am in a terrible place. I've been crying all night. And so when you have those psalms with those tribulations, they often start from a place of, I am in trouble. I feel alone. I'm struggling, and the world is dark. But God is good. I remember who he is and his promises, so I will be okay. Here, uh, it kind of flips that structure on its head. And it starts by saying, God is good. God is our strength. God is our refuge. He is here. He is present. So therefore, I will be okay. And I think that's important for us as we look at some of the things that we're dealing with. Uh, You know, I can spin around in a circle and point at somebody and probably predict one of the things that they might be afraid of today. Uh, A lot of us are afraid of uh, covid A lot of us are afraid of the unvaccinated. Some of us are afraid of socialism. Others, capitalism. Some of us are afraid of China. There is so much out there right now that we can point to that is fearful, that causes fear in us. But we need to remember and start from a place that God is our strength, God is our refuge, and he is present with us. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and fall, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. We're called here to stop and reflect. And you can see uh, the cataclysms that are coming up. These are fantastical calamities. Um, But we won't fear. Because God is our refuge and strength, because he is present, we won't fear the most calamitous events we can imagine. And when we read this, I think it's easy to think that the author is just coming up with things that he imagined. He's thinking of what's the scariest, what's the most intense example I can give here? What's scarier than an earthquake? What's scarier than mountains falling into the ocean? But that's not really the way of the Israelites, the Levites, they tend to be more intentional with the examples that they give. They tend to pay close attention and tribute to their history. 
And so I'm going to reference the sons of Korah again, come back full circle, and ask you to turn to Numbers 16. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. But in Numbers 16, Numbers is a book that doesn't necessarily get the attention it maybe deserves. But there's a very interesting story here. Uh, you have the Israelites traveling through the wilderness after they've come out of Egypt and they chose not to enter the promised land because they were afraid. And so now they are wandering through the wilderness. Moses is leading them. And Korah, who is one of the Levites and some of his friends, come out and challenge Moses. And they say, Moses, you're taking too much responsibility on yourself. The rest of us are just as qualified to do what you're doing. Give up some of your authority. So right away, you see that they have rejected the structure that God has designed. So God set up Moses and Aaron to be in their specific station. And he actually assigned Korah and the Levites to another station. But they have rejected that. And they come and oppose God's structure. They say, this isn't okay with us. We want something different. And so they try to supplant that authority. And Moses' response is to say, actually, you guys are taking too much on yourselves. I don't think you realize who you're challenging. You're not challenging me. You're not challenging Aaron. You are challenging God. So here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow, everyone come, and we are going to have God's answer. God is going to tell us the answer to this question, to this challenge. And so everybody comes together, and they stand, and God comes down among them. His presence is present in the tabernacle, and he speaks to Moses. And Moses takes that word out to the people, and he says, Okay, if these men, if Korah and his friends die of natural causes, things that are common to man, then you know that I took this authority on myself and I wasn't placed in this position by God. But if God does something different, if he does something we haven't seen before and swallows them up in the earth, then you'll know that this is the way it's supposed to be, and I have been put here not of my own will, but by God. And that's what happens. The earth gives way. Korah, the forefather of the sons of Korah who write this psalm, is swallowed up in the earth. So I think it's very intentional that that was the example they start with. <laughs> Crazy story, right? Um, so we know that the sons of Korah, they're not necessarily just thinking of fantastical things. This is a specific example that they know the details of intimately. And they see God's sovereignty happening here. It wasn't a random event. God caused it to happen. And I think what they're doing is identifying with Korah, not in his insubordination, but in the event of him falling into the earth. What they're saying is, if I, like my father Korah, am swallowed up by the earth, I will not fear. The next section, uh, this, this example of the oceans, to me speaks of something similar in that time frame that happened 
with Moses. A little farther back, so in Exodus 14, you have the Israelites coming up to the shores of the Red Sea, and they're being chased by the Egyptians who have decided, we don't want to do this anymore. We are opposing God's commands. We are rejecting it. We're supplanting it. We're going to chase down the Israelites and either kill or capture everyone that we can. And the Israelites are standing on the shores of the Red Sea, and Moses says, do not be afraid. God's going to do something new, something different. And the sea parts, the Israelites cross on dry land, get to the other side and turn around, and the Egyptians are following them, and the sea closes up, swallows them, foams and roars and destroys this mountainous danger that they are facing. And I think that that is specifically what the sons of Korah are thinking about here. And instead of um, identifying with the Egyptians in this sense, I think they identify with the Israelites. So you have them identifying with Korah in experiencing that calamity, and then you have them identifying with Israel as they witness something terrifying. God pouring out supernatural righteous judgment. And they're saying, if we witness this event happen again around us, we will not fear. The next section, verses 4 to 6, unpacks why we should not fear and where our confidence rests in more detail. So there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So I want you to picture visually we are a drone hovering above this city and slowly that drone is going out. You've seen these videos where the picture just slowly expands and you get to see more and more things. And it starts focused on this calm river, this stream that is flowing through this city. And there's definitely parallels in the structure of verses 4 through 6 to uh, verses 1 through 3. But it gives us a little more context, and the author is taking a different angle to communicate the same message. Uh, you have another positive beginning, a serene picture of God and what he has done. We have confidence in a safe, serene God who is like a river. This verse mirrors closely to Isaiah 33, verses 20 and 21, where uh, Isaiah describes Jerusalem and says, The majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams. And I think we can safely say that that city is like the church. And this picture of water is a pretty sharp contrast to the raging seas that we see in verses 2 and 3. The river represents the way in which God is actively our refuge and strength, which is in the person of Jesus Christ. We have good news that doesn't change in the face of any of these trials or threats. Sin and death are defeated. God's justice was poured out on Christ Jesus on the cross, for those that accept him as their savior, and it was satisfied. Then Christ rose from the dead in an act that sealed everything. It confirmed his identity and authority. It fulfilled prophecy, and it conquered the grave for us. And that is the good news that flows through the church. 
It should enrich and inform for us as individuals and corporately everything that we think, say, and do. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So that drone focus on the river now zooms out and you see the, the layout of the city in a little more detail with God directly in the middle. His presence providing security. And him being in the midst of the city is guaranteeing that the city will not be moved. But now you have a hint that there's something else. There's something that is trying to move the city. It wouldn't be important that it won't be moved if something wasn't trying to move it. And God swoops in as the morning dawns to save it. And, and you zoom out all the way and now you see outside of the city walls, the nations are raging and the kingdoms around are tottering. So there is the threat to the city. The nations are raging. They are trying to move and overthrow God's city to supplant his position. In the first section, we read about supernatural disasters, but we didn't really see where they come from. They were just there. They just happened. Here, God helps his city when he opens his mouth, his voice is uttered, and the earth melts. He melts the earth with these nations raging to protect his city. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now going back to that story in Exodus, in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 14, before they've crossed the Red Sea, uh, Israel's rightfully scared. You have millions of people standing on the shore, men, women, and children with no defenses, no walls, no weapons, being chased down by this army that had held them captive for hundreds of years. I think 400, but I don't want to say anything wrong. Um, and what they want is protection. What they want is a wall between them and their enemies, and they don't have it. But God has been leading them through the wilderness, and now he protects them from behind in a cloud, in a pillar of cloud. So God is, and always was, he was always going to be their refuge, just not in the traditional sense that they or we would want. His protection doesn't always come in the way we expect. I'm sure that the weavers uh, have experienced that, wanting a traditional protection, a traditional answer to a threat, and it showing up in a very different way. And this is the way that it is with the Israelites as we look back through their history. You think of David coming up against Goliath, virtually unarmed. You think of Gideon taking 300 men to attack tens of thousands of enemies. And for us, we, we want an answer. I mean, how often does it feel like this for us that we are unprotected, that we are exposed, and how nice it would be to have a wall between us and that thing that we fear? And we fail or forget to realize that God is already doing it. He already has the answer. He's already doing it, just not in the way that we expect. 
I think back to when I started my career. Uh, for anybody who has been in a commission job, uh, especially starting out, there's some weird, scary times when it comes to finances. And I remember very distinctly a week where Anna and I were praying over our finances because we didn't know how we were going to pay our bills. And then all of a sudden, we open up our mailbox and there's an envelope with $500 of cash. I still don't know where it came from. And I didn't pray to get cash in the mail. But that is how God answered that situation and provided security for us. Verses 8 and 9. Uh, Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. So this section shifts to drive home the point. And, and it talks more about the attitude of what we're witnessing and changing how we view it. No longer uh, are things happening around us and we're just seeing it happen. Now we are called to come and watch. Come and see what God is doing. Come witness his power. Come watch him fulfill this promise of being our fortress. He ends all the machinations of war that humans can come up with. And I think we see here the psalmist is showing God, answering all of our fears, the natural, the human, the governmental. God is sovereign over those things. He does this violently. He brings about peace by cutting spears in two and burning chariots, completely ending those threats. And I think there's two ways to look at it. I think you can say, well, that will happen in the world when God brings about his final peace, when Christ comes back and makes this new world and rules. I think also, internally, we can look at this and apply it to ourselves. How often have you had a situation where you grew in a way that the process wasn't painful. Think back to a time where maybe you were overcoming a persistent sin, or you were striving to be more like Christ. Even if you were just trying to adopt a, a habit of doing devotions, it's not an easy process. That process did not come without pain. There's a saying that goes, pain is just weakness leaving the body. And I've been training for the marathon, and basically every time I go for a run, I think about that phrase. Uh, I, I never enjoyed running, and I will still say my favorite part is definitely the end. Um, but my sister just started running this week, actually, to kind of join me. Um, she's got four runs in now, and after one of them, she texted me and she said, my heart hurts and my calves hurt and everything is blurry, smiley face. Um, now, obviously, she's doing something that ultimately will be very beneficial for her, and it sounds like maybe she needs it, but she's not describing something that's enjoyable. She's not describing a fun process, and I think this, this path of growth that we have in the Christian life is like that. We experience pain as we move through situations to be more like Christ. And on the other side, we experience that peace. And I think it's important that we take away from this 
psalm that as God is our refuge and strength, it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't experience pain. We are not safe from physical or emotional pain. This psalm is not saying that we're not going to get COVID. It's not saying that we're not going to get a herniated disc. It's not saying that we won't have cancer. But it is saying that if those things come, if we experience them, we don't need to fear because our strength is secure. So verse 10, after all of these desolations, after all the violence, the supernatural disasters, we are called to be still. Be still and know that he is God. The nations that rejected God, that opposed him and are trying to supplant him, will know that that is not possible. He will be exalted in all the earth. His power, his glory, his holiness will not be denied. And we are called to be still by that river of good news and appreciate that truth. And we're encouraged and affirmed once again that the Lord of hosts is with us, actively sheltering us. So what do we do with this psalm? They're, they're nice words. It's encouraging to read that God is our refuge and that all these things can happen. But how do we not fear when we're going through it? What is the way that we apply this? Sometimes the Sunday school answer is the best. I think we need to look to Jesus to not be shaken. I'll ask you to turn to Luke 22, verse 39, as we look to Jesus and how he answers that. So in this section, Jesus has entered... um, He's entered the garden to pray after having the Passover meal with his disciples. And actually, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to verse 42. So he's removed himself from his disciples, a stone's throw, and he prays to the Father saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So we see here Jesus seeing the ultimate calamity before him and experiencing distress and agony about it. Other accounts in the Gospels affirm he prayed this prayer multiple times. He's fervently asking for this cup to be taken from him. Yet he concludes, not my will, but yours be done. He doesn't fear. And what I would suggest to you when we think of fear, uh, I would describe it as the act of not having our trust be shaken, not allowing the things that are outside of us to move our faith in God. And that impending doom for him 
is so much more than an earthquake or a raging sea or an army. It's so much more than the physical suffering even that he endured on the cross. He became sin for us. He didn't do it. He did not oppose or reject or try to supplant his father, but he received the same righteous judgment and justice as if he had. And in Matthew 27, while he's on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that statement, he describes for us the ultimate of calamities when his connection and his unity with the Father is severed. And he knew that that was coming when he prayed, but he still said, Not my will, but yours be done. And I think that's a great illustration for us as we strive to walk this life. We follow Christ's example. And that example, uh, to me, in Psalm 46, there's just something about it that strikes me because of how it parallels Jesus' life, but in reverse. Think about it. There's a raging sea that the Israelites marvel at as it roars and crashes. In Luke 8, Jesus is with his disciples on a sea that is doing that. It is raging. It is crashing. And his t disciples are terrified. And he instantly stills it. You have God in Psalm 46 breaking down armies, violently defeating them. Jesus is led submissively even docilely, as a lamb to the slaughter, before a conquering nation. And he is lifted up on a tree, not exalted above the nations, but lifted up on a tree. We see the earth in Psalm 46 melting away, swallowing up Korah and these nations into a tomb. And in Matthew 27, after Jesus dies, Matthew recounts how dead saints come out of the tomb. His death caused these miracles to happen, and people woke up from dead and walked out of their graves, as he ultimately did. These stories, this hope, is the river that makes the city glad. All that chaos, all the destruction that is happening around us and around the city is reversed and undone in Jesus Christ, culminating in a grave that couldn't contain him as the stone is rolled away and will not contain us if our faith is in him. We're going to transition now to a time of communion, the Lord's Supper. I'll ask the band to come back on the stage. Before the garden, before Jesus was sweating drops of blood, before he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, he shared that Passover meal with his disciples. He told them what was about to happen to them, and he made a heartfelt request to break bread that represented his body being broken and to eat it together and to drink the cup that represented his blood being spilled, and to do it to remember him. 
We continue to do this together to this day to remember his death and his resurrection and to proclaim those things until he comes again. Now, if you're here with us this morning and you don't know where you're at with Jesus, if, if you haven't approached that point where you decide to make him Lord of your life, to accept his authority and position, to turn away from opposing and rejecting him, I would share two things with you. Today is a great day to do it. It's hard not to get emotional when I think about what Jesus went through and the opportunity that you have to share in that promise. And I would encourage you, confess the name of the Lord, honor him as your Savior, and join us in communion with him. If you're not ready for that, uh, we'd politely ask that you uh, abstain from taking these in uh, respect of what they represent. Um, but feel free to take communion during this next song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that was accomplished on the cross, his obedience to you, his submission to you, his willingness, willingness to say, not my will, but yours be done, and ultimately to see that glorious final victory that gives us hope. Lord, as we take of the bread and drink of the cup together, we proclaim his death and look forward to that day when he comes again. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.